You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Before we open in prayer, um, we're going to be doing a question and answer this morning. Um, false doctrine that you think might be a danger to the church, anything like that. This is your opportunity to do that. So before we begin, let's open in prayer and give our time to the Lord. Our gracious God, we are thankful for this morning and thankful for the grace of being able to be here. We give you our thanks for this place to meet and, and the fellowship that we enjoy as we gather together. We pray your blessing upon this time. Help us to think clearly and to learn much. We pray that this time may be for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. All right, question and answer. Do you have a question? Somebody have a question? Uh, Robert's hand went up first, so Robert, you get to go first. Okay, so the question is, he saw a YouTube clip of uh, somebody played of Kenneth Copeland, who is a confirmed false teacher, a heretic, a word of faith teacher, who uttered the phrase, Jesus is Lord. And Paul says, I'm assuming that the background of your question is that Paul says in one of the letters to the Corinthians that nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, this was offered as proof that Kenneth Copeland is not a false teacher, that he is, in fact, motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit since he was able to utter the words, Jesus is Lord. So how do we reconcile that? Um, we begin with, of course, recognizing that Kenneth Copeland is a false teacher. He is a heretic. But when Paul, when we read in, in is it 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians, because Sean just texted me something about that this morning. Uh, when we read in 1 Corinthians that nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, what Paul does not, Paul does not mean that nobody can utter the words Jesus is Lord, quote unquote, apart from the Holy Spirit. For Paul, what does it mean to confess that Christ is Lord? If we believe that Jesus is Lord and confess this with our mouth and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we are saved. So the confession that Jesus is Lord in all that Paul means and scripture means by that is an indication that somebody has been brought to saving faith in, to, in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So for Paul, saying Jesus is Lord is not just some phrase. If somebody can get those out, therefore they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, as if a false teacher would try to say it but couldn't. Jesus is Jesus is They can't quite say it. They can't form the words because they're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that's not what Paul means. But for Paul, lordship is the sovereignty of Christ, that he is sovereign, and that those who have bowed the knee and confessed that and are willing to die for that confession, because that's what that type of confession was in the first century, um, and they have bowed the knee to Christ and been saved and born again, that type of confession and submission to the Lordship of Christ can only come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, nobody can come to Christ as Savior and Lord and make that confession and be born again without the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Spirit's job to woo us and regenerate us so that that confession in all of its fullness means what it means. Does that make sense? So that's one way of answering it. The other way of answering it is that, of course, false teachers and heretics are always willing to say Jesus is Lord. They're willing to confess that. But many of them, well, most of them, no, all of them, have a false Jesus. They have a Jesus who is a created being, or a Jesus who is not sovereign, or a Jesus who looks very looks and sounds very much like they do. And so their confession that Jesus is Lord, of course, they're confessing that the Jesus that they worship is the Lord of their life. But the Jesus that they worship, 
The Jesus of Kenneth Copeland is not the Jesus of the New Testament or the Jesus of history. They're not the same person. So he can, he can say that, and of course he would say that, but for him that is not an evidence of genuine salvation and conversion because the fruit of his doctrine evidences that that is not a saving confession, that he is not talking about the same Jesus that history records and that the New Testament speaks of. Does that answer it? Okay. Does that answer your question, Sean? Yes, Cornell. Right. Yeah, good point. No, it's a different Jesus. All right, any other questions? Um, Melody. Okay, so the question has to do with this last summer, there was a, a discussion amongst a lot of um, top-tier theologians, um, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, uh, James White was involved in this conversation. Um, am I missing a name that you're aware of? These guys are these guys are heavy hitters in that I have their books and I read them and enjoy them and these are good godly men. And the the controversy has to do with what is the nature and the term of the and by term I mean length of time by w- in which the son is subordinate to the father. So the question has to do with is the second person of the trinity eternally in eternity past subordinate to and submissive to the Father, or was there a continual equality in the status and person... No, that's not the right... That's not the right. Was, is there an eternal... Is that subordination of the Son submitting Himself to the Father, was it eternal? In other words, does it go back as far as God has existed, which is a really long time? Or did that change at some point where the Son willingly submitted himself to the Father, and that subordination came at a point in eternity past when the plan of redemption was hatched. And I'm not even sure, I didn't follow this too closely because I don't know that, I don't know that it can be, it's, it's more than just mere semantics, but at the same time, what one views about that, I'm not certain at this point makes them a heretic. So that, sort of nuance of theology is not something that I dove into and plumbed deeply in the sense that I'm coming down on one side or the other. Um, some would say that if the Son was... Let me, let me back up. I would have no problem affirming that the Son was eternally subordinate to the Father as long as by that we are not meaning in any way lesser than the Father. So this relationship of father and son has always been. There was never a time when the second person was not the son of the father or the father was not the father. The first person was not the father. That relationship has always been. And when one subordinates oneself to another, it doesn't make him lesser of a being or lesser of a person than the one to whom he is subordinate. It just means that the son willingly submitted to, for the sake of redemption, the will and decree of the father regarding what he planned to do for the glorification of his own name in redeeming a people. And that the Son willingly does that, and the Spirit himself willingly subordinates himself to the plan of the Father and the Son in doing all of the will of the Father just as the Son does. So there is, in Trinitarian theology, there is no distinction amongst amongst the persons of the Trinity in terms of their nature or their substance. They are one substance and one nature, so we affirm that. But for the sake of redemption, there is a subordination that works itself out in economic terms, in the economy of how the Trinity operates. There is a subordination that obviously takes place 
where the Son comes to the earth to do all the will of the Father. And the Son does nothing apart from the Father's will. He only does what He sees the Father doing. Um, he doesn't do anything on His own initiative. Jesus Himself said, I can do nothing except what the Father has given me to do. And it, it didn't have anything to do with Him being a lesser of a person or lesser in nature, but a subordinate or submissive role even amongst the persons of the Trinity. And so this sort of came out this summer, and I'm not even sure what instigated it, but I just know that I listened to the podcast with James White. Um, I have appreciated Bruce Ware's work on the Trinity in the past, as well as Wayne Grudem. And so I didn't dive too deeply into trying to find out, like, what are the fine points of this? Part of it in my ear just strikes me as, as semantics. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't tread on that too uh, heavily because maybe there is some distinction there that I'm not catching, um, that I'm not fully aware of. I don't know if that made any sense, any of that. I guess maybe ask some questions to clarify that. But let's go with Robert first because Robert's hand was up. Yeah, is the distinction role versus attributes? And, and it is. The the role of the Son is a, is a role that is in submission to the Father and to the Father's will. But it doesn't mean that the Son's will is contrary to the Father's will. That the Son begrudgingly left heaven to, to come and down to earth and redeem a people for himself. So it is it is not attributes. They are one substance and one nature, one will, but three separate and distinct persons. So I, I didn't jump in. I just didn't have time this summer to kind of get into that, and I maybe could have, but it wasn't something that was so pressing to me that I thought it was worth um, worth diving into and investing a lot of time in. So I'm not even sure which side which guys were on. I just knew that there was a controversy and I knew some of the, who some of the principles were that were involved in it and what the issue was regarding. But I didn't jump into any of the arguments um, and try and cash that out. Anytime somebody comes along and says, hey, we have a new way of understanding the Trinity, it's just red flag, red flag, red flag. Hold on a second. What do we... Like, we just don't want to be redefining terms. I think we've got the doctrine of the Trinity nailed down. We need to teach what we know to be true. And so I don't think if this is something that ends up dividing the body of Christ because I'm in this camp and they're in that camp, I don't think that that is healthy or right at all, especially over this issue, because we affirm that the Son is subordinate to the Father. Um, the question is, is that subordination an eternal one going back for eternity past? And part of that question is, is that subordination to the Father something that will be eternally existent in the future? Yeah, Pat, Pat's point is that in eternity, we, there's not a lot that is revealed or not enough that is revealed about eternity past and eternity future regarding that issue. Some people would point to 1 Corinthians 15 where it says that uh, in the future, the Father will hand the kingdom to Christ and He will be over all things and hand that back to the Father, that this is a, an indication that that uh, subordination, that term of that subordination has come to an end and that the Son is no longer subordinate to the Father. But it, in terms of eternity, I don't know why it would be uh, um, detrimental to our Trinitarian theology to see that subordination as something that has been everlastingly. That the Son has always been the Son, and the Father has always been the Father, and there has always been this um, st this economic structure within the Trinity. As long as our idea of subordination doesn't, again, entail any notions of inequality in the, among the persons. That was a good question. I wish I was... I wish I had spent more time figuring that out over the course of the summer. Well, yeah, I don't know. I would only lose you if I can't, if I didn't understand it myself. And maybe that's why I just lost you. 
Um, but if I understand it myself, I don't think I would lose you with it because I think I would be able to explain it. Any other questions? Next one. There's somebody up here. No? Yeah, Brad. Brad asked if I could comment on the intent and the application of Mark 16, 17 through 19. Okay, so here's the passage. In fact, we can go up to Mark 16, verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will hurt not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the work by the signs that followed. Um, my translation has a note at the end of that. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. If you're Translation doesn't have that. It's because that's a, a another potential ending to the Gospel of Mark. Um, the issue with Mark 16 verses 9 through the end of the chapter, and whatever note that you have that should be uh, that is amended to the end of Mark, is um, that that is part of a text of Scripture that I don't believe was even part of the original Gospel of Mark. So we have a spurious um, we have a spurious passage at the end of Mark's Gospel. Um, this is this doesn't undermine our confidence that what we have in the New Testament that we can rely upon that and we know that was written because we can identify passages that shouldn't belong or things that were changed or mistakes that were made in the transmission of the text. If we weren't able to do that, we wouldn't be able to recognize that Mark 16 is in fact not Mark's original ending. It is my conviction that Mark ends with verse 8, chapter 16, verse 8, where the women left. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Some people don't like that type of an ending because when you compare it with Matthew, Luke, and John, it seems like it's incomplete. Like we need, we need resurrection appearances. We need a great commission. We need some, some discussion between Jesus and his disciples after the resurrection. And apparently that, I, I'm sympathetic to that because it does feel like it is incomplete, but it, it's completely in keeping with Mark's style in his gospel, which is, it's quick, it's it's fast, it's very short, it's concise. And so Mark leaves us hanging there in awe of the resurrection, not really feeling the need, probably as the earliest gospel written, not feeling the need to uh, buttress what he has told us with different resurrection appearances to the disciples. So there's no, even this passage, verses 9 through the end, there is no text of Scripture, there's no, there's no parchment or manuscript in which those um, are not added at the end looking as if it were an addition. Uh, there are complete manuscripts of Mark that don't have that ending. There are the, uh, this ending also, is it this? I think it is this passage that also finds its way into other Gospels um, where it's kind of like an ending that was floating around and people attached it to Mark. And so that's where it is in our translation. One of the other issues with this text is the fact that there are, and I forget what the exact number is, but there are a number of words that are used here in verses 9 to 20 that are nowhere else used in anywhere in Mark's gospel. The style seems completely different from what Mark, when, when, than what Mark wrote. 
And so that's another issue with it. Now, that's not a necessarily a deal breaker because just because somebody uses language in one section of their writing that they don't use in another does not necessarily mean they didn't write it. Right? If I wrote a letter to Lanny, it might read a lot differently than a letter I wrote to my wife. Um, the language would be different, but it doesn't mean that I didn't write both of them. So that's not necessarily in itself just a deal breaker or an issue. But it is an indication that there is a problem with this text. So having said that, I don't believe that Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through the end of the chapter is a legitimate portion of the Gospel of Mark. And if I were preaching through the Gospel of Mark, I would probably... Let me turn this notification off. Um, if I were preaching through the Gospel of Mark, I would come to this passage and I would say, let us grant for a moment that what it says here is an accurate reflection and that it's truthful. Let's just grant that and let's treat it as if it were Scripture and authoritative for just a moment and then let's work our way through the passage and see what it teaches. So then we come to the issue of what is the application, the intention of that passage. And the problem, obviously, is the things that Jesus says in verses 16, 15 through 18. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's verse 15. We don't have a problem with that because we read something like that in the Gospel of Matthew, at the end of Matthew's Gospel. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, and he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Verse 16 seems to suggest that baptism is necessary for salvation. So that creates a theological problem. So we have... Not only do we have difference in language and we have a passage that seems to float around amongst different Gospels and doesn't seem to be part of Mark's original Gospel, but then you have these theological issues that are raised by the ending itself. So, verse 16, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Is baptism necessary for salvation? That verse seems to suggest so. Though the end of verse 16 doesn't say, He who is not baptized will be condemned, but he who is what? Not believed will be condemned. And in the first century, belief and baptism were tied very closely together. And so that would just explain that, that Jesus is not here teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation. Verse 17, these signs will accompany those who have believed. And so if, if these signs accompany those who have believed, then the implication is that everybody who has believed will also have all of these signs. And what are they? In my name they will cast out demons. That's exorcisms. So we'll see, that the theology of that verse doesn't fit with the rest of the New Testament if we're talking about all who have believed and not just the apostles. And some would try and narrow this down. In order to make this an orthodox passage of Scripture, they would try and narrow it down and say, these are the promises just to the apostles or the disciples, the twelve, in which case then we have something that can be made orthodox there because the twelve disciples did cast out demons. They did. They were bitten by serpents and lived, like Paul on the island of Malta in Acts chapter 28. Um, they did speak with new tongues. Um I don't know if anybody drank deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They did lay hands on the sick, and the sick recovered. So those signs did accompany, all of the signs mentioned here did accompany the 12 apostles who followed in Jesus' footsteps when they preached the gospel, except for the one about drinking deadly poisons. There's no record in the New Testament that that happened. So if all who have believed, if those who have believed means all who have believed will perform these signs, then that means that we ought to be handling snakes and we ought to be drinking poisons and we ought to be healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons and yet nowhere else in Scripture are we given warrant to do those things. And now you can see why there are, this passage of Scripture is used by the snake handlers uh, down in the south and I'm just picking on southerners but you don't see it happening in Kootenai and Sandpoint but the snake handlers who are down in the south handling deadly serpents, this is the type of passage that they look to as proof that they can do this and not be bitten. They'll handle snakes and, and the poison won't bother them. So, to answer Brad's question, what is the application intention of it? I, I don't think that, I don't think it is a passage that can be applied to all believers because of everything else that the New Testament teaches. 
and because I think of the spurious nature of the text itself. If it is a legitimate text, if it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then I think that the application from the testimony of Scripture and history can only apply to the twelve disciples and not to us. Yeah, that is a question. Uh, the question is in verse 12. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. And again, this is part of the this is part of the ending that is spurious. What does it mean that he appeared in a different form? Um, this appearance seems to describe the appearance to the two men on the road to Emmaus. And so this might be whoever wrote this, and again, I don't believe it is Mark. This might be their attempt to describe the veiled, the, the two men on the road to Emmaus that did not understand who it was that was speaking to them until he was revealed to them in the breaking of bread. So some people look to this and say, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would point to that passage and say, see that Jesus, every time he appeared, he appeared in a different body. He manufactured bodies, spiritual bodies to appear in because Jesus wasn't actually raised in a physical body. He manufactured a physical body to appear in and everybody was different. That's why the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. That's why Mary Magdalene was slow to recognize him at the tomb that morning. That's why, um, you know, they, they knew it was the Lord, but they didn't want to say anything because they weren't absolutely certain. And that's why the two, the disciples, the seven disciples in the boat in the Sea of Galilee didn't immediately recognize him when he said, if you caught any fish, throw the net out on the other side. And they didn't recognize it until they hauled the net in. And that's when John said to Peter, it's the Lord. Remember that? They didn't recognize him at first. So they would point to this as evidence that every time Jesus appeared, he appeared in some different body. He looked differently to everybody. Um, but again, I don't believe that it's a legitimate description of that resurrection appearance. It sounds as if the author is simply trying to explain that Jesus was not seen by them and recognized by them to the two, by the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the miracle was not that Jesus appeared in a different body, it's that he veiled their eyes. That's what Luke says. It's, it wasn't because he appeared in a different form and that was unrecognizable. It is that they were kept from seeing who he was. With the implication of that text in Luke is that had Jesus not hidden himself from them in that way, they would have recognized who he was. Yeah, Carol. Right, right. Uh, Carol's point is that just as the gospel is veiled to those who do not believe, and unless God chooses to open their eyes, they won't see it or, or understand it no matter how many times they hear it. It's, it's, it's the same in that their eyes are, are both veiled, but with the disciples, their eyes were veiled because they would have recognized him had he not blinded them. But with us, um, we are doubly blind. We are blind because we are dead and we are born blind to spiritual things, but we're also blind because in our unsafe state because the God of this world has blinded our eyes. We are doubly blind. If the God of this world did not veil our veil the eyes of the unbelieving so that they would not behold the glory, um, they still would not behold the glory. They still would not come to faith in Christ. If the devil didn't exist, a lost person would be no more able to come to repentant faith than the fact that the devil does exist. Okay, the question is in verse seven: When Jesus, when the when the angel spoke to the women, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Um, the question was, why single out Peter? Is Peter not a disciple? And it, it, it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't mean that Peter wasn't a disciple. I think what the, the angel is doing is specifically singling out Peter, because Peter would end up being the leaders, the leader of the twelve, basically. He was the first among equals. So he wasn't, doesn't mean he's the first pope. It just meant that he had a preeminent role of leadership amongst those twelve. And I think that the angel there is signaling out Peter for a couple of different reasons. Peter was the one who had denied him and fled. And I think that the angel is saying, you know, make sure that you address Peter and tell him as well. 
singling him out so that Peter, because imagine how Peter would have felt. Um, he might have been somebody who just said, you know what, I'm not going there because I've already defamed my Lord too much. I'm not, I just count me out. I'm done. I'm over. And I think that the angel was singling Peter out to make sure that he was encouraged to go and be part of this meeting. Secondly, because Peter was the leader of the apostles. And the third reason is, um, I think Mark records this, which I'm not sure, if, I can't remember if the other Gospels do. You think I should remember that since we just went through John and spent nine months in the resurrection accounts. But I don't think that the other Gospels mention that. Mark does. Mark is uniquely considered Peter's Gospel. Mark being the traveling companion of Peter. And Peter's fingerprints are all over this Gospel. Uh, the early church regarded this as Peter's gospel, even though it bears Mark's name. Mark being the one who wrote it under the leadership and, and oversight of Peter is probably the primary eyewitness. So in, this may be Mark's way of, of sort of singling Peter out for that reason. If Jesus was not killed, he would not have died. Is that correct? A man without sin would not die. Right. He was not subject to the fall, though he had a human body. The human body was not a glorified body. Um, it was subject to weakness. Death would not have come upon him as a result of the sin and his own sin, so he would have lived forever. That is what... Uh, it's hard to answer questions that if this hadn't happened, this would have, been, this would have happened because it's a, it's a counterfactual. It's a question about a counterfactual. So my speculative mind says that since death comes as a result of sin and since Jesus himself never sinned, his body was not subject to death. Um, it, it's, but his body was subject to bleeding and suffering and pain as well. And was it subject to sickness? Did he ever get a common cold? It was a body of weakness and he was in all points tempted as we are. So, you know, these are... Oh, he willingly sacrificed. Yeah. He laid down his life, right? But if... If he had not done that, would he have lived forever? Um, I'm tempted to say yes. And his body would not have been subject to death. Okay, what is the nature of... The question is, what is the nature of Satan and his body? Was he a serpent in the tree? Or was he cast to the ground as a serpent? Were snakes part of the curse? Or Right. The all right, let, Let's back up for just a second. The devil was a created angel, right? The highest and the greatest of the cherubim. And that angel's fall did not transform that angel into a snake. The snake or the serpent in the Garden of Eden was the instrument that the devil used to speak through and to Adam and Eve. Now the curse upon that serpent was that the serpent would crawl on its belly on the days of its life. So that possibly suggests that at some point prior to the fall, snakes had a different form or maybe moved about differently than they do today and that now that is part of the curse upon the serpent for doing that, um, for being the willing instrument or the instrument that Satan used to tempt Adam and Eve and bring the fall of mankind. Snakes do not exist because of the fall like bugs and... or like no, bugs don't exist because of the fall either. Um, like thorns and thistles. These things... It's hard for us to imagine what was life like prior to the fall because we've never lived in such a world. So people, people, for instance, say, how is it that animals like lions that have real sharp teeth that look uniquely created to eat meat, how is it that those lions ate or were vegetarians prior to the fall? And though we can't imagine it, we can't say that that never happened. 
We just have to be able to say that that everything functioned differently in the garden without the curse than it does today. Um, how would it be possible to live in a world where you would you would never bleed, you would never experience death or disease or pain or suffering or sickness or illness, or, and you were free from all of those things where energy never ran out and and everything was not cursed and nothing was vain and it's hard for us to imagine that world, but bugs and serpents and um, weeds had different, uh, and bacteria had different functions before the fall than they do after the fall. Now, because everything is busted and, and ruined by the fall of mankind, these things function in ways that are different than before the fall. So were there gnats before the fall? I'm inclined to say yes, there were gnats before the fall because I don't think that any of these things were created or evolved after the fall. So whatever exists and exists today did not spontaneously generate, nor was it created after the fall or evolve after the fall. So those things existed, but I don't believe that in the Garden of Eden, gnats would have got into people's food and spoiled it or got into their eyes or flew up their nostrils or anything like that. So the whole the whole way that creation functioned would have been differently. But now that it's broken, everything is a everything is a curse and a vexation rather than a delight. So the question is, in heaven, all these things will be there, but back to their original creation state. In, in heaven, we will have physical bodies and we will live on an eternal, glorified, redeemed earth, resurrected earth and a resurrected new heavens and new earth. Will there be animals there? I think Scripture suggests there will be animals. Not the animals that are here that are resurrected, but there will be trees and, and gardens and streets and rivers and fruit and abundance of food and things that we get to enjoy in this creation. Will gnats be part of the new heaven and the new earth? Um, I don't know. Because the Scripture is silent about that. So I don't know that Scripture says that everything that was part of this creation will be part of the new creation. We do know that the heavens and the earth will be part of the new creation. And we are told about about trees and rivers and water and, and things that we get to enjoy and plants and animals. We are told about those things, but the Scripture is silent about gnats and bugs. Um, if they are part of the new creation, then they're, they're not going to be an annoyance. Or they will have some function in the new heavens and new earth. Um, for the glory of God that we that I can't foresee now. It, it's one of the mistakes that some people make is that they try and judge um, what life was like before the fall by what we are familiar with today, and you just can't do that. A lot of a lot of old Earth creationists will say, um, you know, there must have been death before the fall because look at lions. Lions were obviously created to eat meat, and look at a koala bear. They're obviously created to eat meat. They have sharp teeth. Well, I can look at an animal and see that it has sharp teeth. And the only thing that I can, the only thing that I can conclude from that is that they have sharp teeth. Maybe a lion was created in the Garden of Eden and they, they enjoyed eating coconuts and they needed sharp teeth in order to, to gnaw into the coconuts. Maybe that's the way it was. And they said, well, that lions don't eat coconuts today. Well, things are different today than they were before the fall. Everything is not just different, but radically different today than it was before the fall. It's not just like things have altered just a little bit. Right, it gets a little colder than we like, or a little hotter than we like. It's that everything is so radically different that we have no idea even what that paradise was like. So you, we can't we can't judge a current cre- look at current creation and extrapolate that back to the past and say that before Adam and Eve fell, these creatures were created to do this, and here's how they did it. Well, all we are familiar with is what exists today, and we we can't we can't go back to the past and and say that's what it was like before the fall. That's why we have to take what Scripture says. All the animals were vegetarians prior to the fall. All of them were. And we affirm that not because we look at lions and say, uh, well, they're vegetarians, or we look at dogs and we say, well, they can get along with eating vegetables. We don't make that conclusion based upon our observations today. We make that conclusion based upon what Scripture clearly says about all the animals 
and men were vegetarians before the fall. Uh, I had a dog that used to eat carrots and apple cores and cores out of cabbage, and he would just beg for watermelon. He loved watermelon. And we would feed him these vegetables all the time, and he loved them, and he ate them. And I read a story about a lion that doesn't have any desire to eat meat. It eats hay. A lion that eats hay. It was in Answers Magazine, Answers in Genesis Magazine. So sometimes we see things like this, and, and I don't look at that lion and say, oh, it needs to be put out of its misery. It's obviously missing its, its evolutionary purpose. I look at that lion, and I say, that's a glimmer of what life was like before the fall, where lions were vegetarians. That's not odd to me. That's a, a remnant of a pre-fall, of a pre-fall existence. That's a, a hint at what that was like. And was Tyrannosaurus Rex a meat eater before the fall? No, I don't think he was. He gave veg- I think he ate vegetables. Right? God created all the land animals. Uh, all the land animals ate vegetables. Dinosaurs are land animals. So yeah, they had gnarly teeth, but that just means they ate really crunchy vegetables. That's all I can conclude from that. <clears throat> All right. Did, was there somebody else who had a question? Carol? Carol? PETA must be right? <laughs> no. Uh, no, PETA is not right. It was after the flood, God said, I've given you all of this to enjoy. Including me. Which I'm so thankful for that. All right. Well, that is our time then. We'll call that a wrap. I hope that was edifying and encouraging for you in some way. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we are so thankful that your word is true and that we can, we can test all things by it and that you have given us your word, uh, as a, as a measure for those things. We thank you for the time that we have had today and we thank you for the clarity of, uh, of what is written and we pray that you would help us to think Christianly about everything and bring everything back to your word and to trust what your word says about, even above what we observe and feel. Uh, may that be the standard and the measure by uh, of all that we do so that Christ may be glorified in and through us and in and through his church. For the glory of you, our great triune God, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.